time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Some very interesting stories on the docket today, including one that I often find myself wondering about in terms of intent, criminal mind. And at the same time, I'm often told that ignorance of the law is not an excuse for unknowingly breaking the law. And I always wondered how that contradiction was reconciled in certain situations. Well, sometimes with some difficulty, supposed <laughs> to be the answer. Good answer. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, we, we have a uh, important decision that tries to address that in the context of uh, bail, uh, alleged breaches of bail that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada just this morning. Um, and this is a case that actually originated uh, up in Courtney on Vancouver Island here. Um, and it was uh, originally a case where a person was charged with a drug offense. And they were released on bail with a bunch of conditions. Uh, and the conditions in this case included a curfew, the person be at home, but it also included a condition that the person present themselves to the door if a police officer or bail supervisor came and rang the bell of their house. And I think it even said they had five minutes to present themselves to the door. Well, the police showed up on two occasions and rang the doorbell and nobody came to the door. And so this man wound up being uh, arrested eventually and charged with breaching his bail conditions, both breaching the curfew and not showing up at the door. The man had a trial on the breach of bail conditions because they're a criminal charge like any other. Uh, and the man testified. And he said, well, yes, indeed, I was home, uh, but I was in my bedroom. And you can't hear the doorbell from my bedroom. And, well, that's why I didn't come there. I wasn't out. I just didn't hear the bell. Hmm. And the judge believed him, or at least was left with a reasonable doubt about whether he was in fact home, because the judge found him not guilty of breaching his curfew, but did convict him of failing to show up for the doorbell. Uh, and so the issue became this issue of, well, what is the mens rea, right, or the mental requirement to be guilty of, the, of an offense of breaching your conditions of bail? because criminal offenses require uh, two things. One would be the actus reus, not showing up in response to the doorbell. Uh -huh. But then they also require somebody to do something intentionally. We don't punish people criminally for accidents, for example, right? You uh -huh. know, uh, and so the trial court, uh, the original, at the original trial, the judge applied what would be referred to as an objective fault test. Uh, for that mens rea, the mental element requirement. And the objective uh, approach would be to ask yourself, well, did what the person do amount to a marked departure from what a reasonable person would do? Sort of an objective thing. I recall rather, that from our dangerous driving discussions. Yeah, that's right. And rather than saying, well, what did this man actually have in his mind? Did this man actually hear the, the doorbell and fail to show up at it? Uh, because the, the judge at least accepted he was home. He said, I couldn't hear it. And so what do you do? Judge convicts them. It goes off to a summary conviction appeal in the B.C. Supreme Court. That judge upholds the conviction. It goes to the Court of Appeal in British Columbia. Five judges there uphold the conviction. Uh, and then it goes off to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, who today uh, found that all of the other judges involved got this wrong, uh, and that the requirement is that you must show that the person actually knowingly, intentionally didn't do it, uh, do what was required, or that they acted recklessly, which is something very close to uh, intentionally not doing it, right? If somebody, I guess, uh, I don't know, realized the police were coming and just plugged their ears and started singing so they couldn't hear the doorbell, that might get you to recklessness, indeed, right? Indeed, indeed. Okay. He didn't hear the doorbell. So that's really important. But the cases 
uh, very important not only for changing uh, clearly what the making clear what the uh, requirement is to be convicted of breaching your bail, but the other reason why this case is uh, much more important than that. Um, is what the Supreme Court of Canada talks about in terms of how we should all be approaching that issue of bail and conditions put on people. And this is the second Supreme Court of Canada case in just a few years that's addressed that. And in this one, the court has made very clear that the approach which we have been following in British Columbia and elsewhere uh, is not an appropriate approach. Um, one of the things which happens routinely in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. is that we wind up imposing what are sometimes called sort of boilerplate conditions uh, on, for example, somebody's release. In fact, in British Columbia, there's this thing called a bail pick list, which goes on for 24 pages with all manner of various things in it, you know, sort of attend school or, you know, they all have numbers to make it even easier to, you know, sort of type up these orders with all kinds of conditions. I think this man had like... 16 conditions or something on his bail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada in this case uh, has made clear that the default is that a person should be released with no conditions other than the requirement that they attend court. And if any condition at all is to be imposed, it is not to be some routine boilerplate pick list condition. Uh, and instead, any condition that has to be imposed has to go to the legitimate considerations of bail, like making sure the person's going to show up in court, for example, right? That a condition has to be carefully considered, it has to be tailored to the person, uh, and we shouldn't just automatically pick a bunch of things that sound like, well, they might be a good idea here. And they gave, for example, let's say you put a person, let's say a young person who's arrested for shoplifting or something. It can be very tempting when somebody's making a bail decision to say things like, well, let's just list a bunch of Uh, conditions which would describe a child who's not having any trouble. Let's list, uh, uh, be home by 9 p.m., attend school every day, uh, don't consume alcohol, don't use marijuana, uh, you know, report to the bail supervisor once a week, a whole bunch of things that sound like, well, that seems like a good idea. Yes. But, of course, listing a bunch of things doesn't make all those things happen and doesn't turn a person who's got a a drug addiction into somebody who's drug-free by listing don't have drugs, right? All you do is you create the prospect that you may be criminally convicted for skipping school or using alcohol, for example. It doesn't make the person no longer an alcoholic. It just subjects them potentially to the prospect of a criminal conviction. And so the other reason why this case is so important uh, is it admonishes everyone Crown, defense, uh, judicial officials, not to, for example, go to your pick list and just pick off a bunch of routine conditions that sound like a really good idea to sort of make sure this person's back on track as a bail condition. Some of those things may be perfectly appropriate if the person is found guilty and you were, for example, creating a probation order, right, designed to rehabilitate the person. But that's not what a bail uh, order is to be. Uh, And... The other thing the court, I think, astutely picks up on is oftentimes a person winds up with this long list of conditions by agreeing to them, sometimes without a lawyer, sometimes with duty counsel or somebody who's helping. Uh What happens is a person gets arrested, Crown suggests, oh, we'll agree to this person's release on a bunch of conditions. There's 16 of them here. And the person says, yes, 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 I want to get out of here right now, right? Uh Uh, And agree to all these things, and then off they go. But, and that seems expeditious at the time, but then, of course, it subjects the person to a grave risk of 
uh, breaching the conditions, being charged with breaching them, uh, and then a very large percentage of what we do in the criminal justice system are these what they call administration of justice offenses. So people charged with, you know, consuming alcohol contrary to their bail order or breaching their probation by being late reporting to their bail supervisor. And there's a very high percentage of cases which are just those kind of things. And this case admonishes everyone involved, defense counsel, crown, judicial officials, to remember people are presumed to be innocent. The presumption in most cases is that a person should be released with simply their agreement to attend court and do not start going through the 24 pages of pick list conditions, picking off a bunch of things you think might be a great idea in terms of, you know, like some of the things you hear, like counseling treatment, drug and alcohol prohibitions, uh, all kinds of things, right? All of which may be, in some particular case, if it's tailored to that individual, the minimum required number of conditions, you might be able to justify them. But the Supreme Court of Canada has said, stop doing what we have been doing uh, and winding up just reactively imposing a whole list of boilerplate conditions Uh, And then they've made clear that if there is an alleged breach of something uh, like the conditions here, the Crown would be required to prove the full mens rea, that the person knowingly did that, right? Not, you know, uh, sorry, a reasonable person would have had a louder doorbell or, you know, slept in the living room so they could hear it better. That won't be enough, pointing out that these are criminal offenses. You can be, and here's the other thing, Remembering everyone, of course, is presumed to be innocent. You can have a circumstance where, and it's not clear in this case, for example, this individual, of course, may have been found not guilty eventually of the substantive drug offense. Yes. But if you're convicted of failing to show up for the doorbell, you can wind up with a criminal record for that, no matter what happens down the road with the original thing that you were charged with. Profoundly unsatisfying. Right. So this is an important case. It clarifies this point but it also makes some really important points for all of us uh, that are dealing with people every day to just not get into the routine of uh, picking a bunch of good-sounding conditions uh, and routinely putting uh, people in a position where they're going to be subject to uh, breaching them. So a really important decision uh, released today and came from Vancouver Island. Fascinating. I want to take a quick break here. Legally speaking, we'll continue with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this. We continue with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Social host liability. Michael, what does that mean? Oh, that's a good question. We've been trying to answer for some number of years now. Um, we uh, uh, once again have, uh, I think, a little bit more uh, clarity on that uh, with respect to uh, social host liability relating to uh, children. Uh, and the, this was a, a decision uh, just released uh, this week, uh, and it was a, a decision from the B.C. Supreme Court, and it arose originally from, from 2012 on Salt Spring. Uh, and back in 2012, uh, there was a real tragedy there. Um, they were parents of uh, 17-year-olds who decided they were going to permit uh, a house party at their home uh, where they would allow uh, the kids there to consume alcohol and marijuana. Uh, their thinking was, well, the kids of, that are 17 are doing that anyways, and better that we supervise them uh, and, you know, make sure people turn in their keys and so on, uh, rather than having them go off into the bush somewhere and do that sort of thing. So that's what the parents decided to do. Uh-huh. Tragically, at the end of this party where people had been consuming alcohol and marijuana, 
um, a couple of the kids went off and they uh, they walked off and found a neighbor's car, Subaru, which had the keys left in it. Uh, and I must say, I smiled at this from a perspective of how things operate on Salt Spring. Uh, the evidence was uh, people, at least at that time, were very uh, trusting. Uh, the neighbors were trying to sell the Subaru for an extended period of time. Somebody called and said, oh, yes, I'm interested in it. And so they said, well, we'll just leave the keys in the car. You can come by whenever you like and try it out. <laughs> uh, so very, I like that level of social trust. That's, yeah. that's rather idyllic. Yes, I thought so as well. So the person, no, never, nobody did show up, but they just left the keys in the car. And that apparently not unusual in Salt Spring. So huh. it's wonderful on one level. Um, Tragically, though, a couple of the uh, the kids from the party went there uh, and uh, took the Subaru and went for a drive in it um, and uh, crashed. And tragically, the, the driver of the car died in the car accident, and the passenger in the car was very seriously injured. He was 17 at the time. He was in a coma for 12 days, and then in rehabilitation, he had to relearn how to speak and eat. Um, and is still now living in an uh, assisted living facility now. So tragic result. Now, the, uh, the, the 17-year-old who survived but had those very major problems um, sued various people, um, including uh, the uh, parents who hosted the party. Uh, and uh, his claim against the parents uh, was alleging that uh, they had... Um, uh, liability for what happened to him as a result of this concept of social host liability. Mm. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada back in 2006 found in a case it's uh, Childs is the name of the first person involved with it. In that case, they found that generally speaking, there isn't going to be social host liability uh, with respect to adults that come over to your home for a party. But they pointed out that there could be some special circumstances uh, that uh, there could be some uh, social host liability on the basis that there would be a, a duty of care to uh, other people using the highway to avoid, you know, car accidents and so on. Yes. Uh, and they suggested that some of the limited circumstances where there could be social host liability in Canada would include things like if you intentionally attracted or invited people to your home where there's an obvious risk, that was their suggestion. But the second one of the possible circumstances was this where there was a paternalistic relationship of supervision and control, such as a parent-child or teacher-student. Um, and then there's a third one, which can occur where you have a commercial enterprise, like a bar that overserves somebody, knowing that they're then going to drive. They could have some responsibility uh, on the basis that they have uh, sort of a public uh, function and responsibility to the public at large. So social host liability isn't generally going to apply to adults in Canada, but could apply to commercial enterprises that are selling alcohol and in some circumstances can apply where there's this sort of paternalistic relationship like uh, uh, children, young people. And so that's the basis of this case went forward on. Um, ultimately, the judge found that in this circumstance, uh, that claim was not uh, well-founded and denied uh, compensation from the parents uh, and pointed out that, uh, you know, the judge pointed out that what is required of somebody uh, would be conduct which would be in accordance with what an ordinary, reasonable, and prudent person would do, um, or, you know, careful and prudent parent, not a standard of perfection. Like, it's not enough to point out, well, you could have done more. Yeah. And the parents here, while they permitted people to use alcohol and marijuana, they made sure the keys were collected, they walked through the party to make sure people were behaving okay, nobody else drove while they were impaired, 
and the court concluded that, look, it's just not reasonably foreseeable that somebody who didn't drive there is going to walk off, take a Subaru, <laughs> or take a car, yeah. and then go and get an accident. The, the parents didn't have a duty to foresee and prevent um, this tragedy. Yes. And so the big takeaway here would be that um, you need to be careful, of course. You need to act reasonably, right? Yes. Uh, and in many respects, that's sort of what the law boils down to. And one would hope it is, right? And it should, in my view. Like, yeah. You've got to be prudent. You've got to act like an ordinary, reasonable person. You know, and if somebody was saying, look, uh, you know, just go for it. I don't care if you're drunk. Uh, good luck getting home. You might well wind up... <laughs> attracting some liability. Here, the parents did other things, like they, they themselves drove some of the children home at the end of the night. Um, and the court also pointed out that the, the amount of supervision required also depends on the age of the children being supervised. And the court said, look, where the child is 17 years old, as in this case, I accept that the degree of supervision and control is at the lower end, right? You, you would owe, a, I think, a much greater duty of care if you were, you know, permitting you know, 13-year-olds to drink alcohol and then just hit the road, right? But uh, there would be a scale of these things, and while there's still some obligation to act reasonably and be prudent, um, the uh, court found, um, I think quite sensibly, that yes. parents here, while not engaging in perfection, were at least making reasonable efforts, getting keys, driving kids home, supervising what was going on there, and the rationale for permitting this was better here under my supervision uh, than having people go out and do it in a completely unsupervised way. And for all of those reasons, found that even though there is some obligation uh, when you're dealing with children, um, that uh, it wasn't so far as to uh, create social host liability in that case. Fascinating. We have four minutes and 15 seconds left. How shall we spend them? Well, I think probably this one deserves at least four minutes. Uh, this was another case from the B.C. Court of Appeal in a case called Bacon. It's from the Surrey 6 murder uh, case that people yes. may have uh, heard something about. This was a terrible case from a number of years ago where six people were murdered in Surrey. And uh, Bacon, the accused, was alleged to have or charged with committing one count of first-degree murder and allegedly ordering the killing of a rival leading to the murder of the other six. That was the theory of it. But the case went on for months, having these hearings dealing with uh, the conduct of the police. And eventually the judge concluded, and the Crown, I think, didn't take issue with, a conclusion that the police engaged in what was described as egregious misconduct amounting to an abusive process and led to the trial judge staying or discontinuing the murder prosecution on the basis of this conduct she found to be just so egregious as to amount to an abusive process. Um, and the decision which just came out was a decision from the uh, B.C. Court of Appeal reviewing that judge's decision to stay the proceedings. And ultimately, the Court of Appeal concluded that while there was clearly uh, this egregious conduct, which they don't describe here, and that's an important point made as well, hmm. they find that the trial should have been nonetheless permitted to proceed and has directed that that be so. The other thing which is, I think, really interesting about this is the Court of Appeal doesn't set out what that egregious conduct was, nor did the judge on the basis of claims by the Crown that it was privileged, whatever they were doing, uh, and that it might interfere with the fair trial. But the Court of Appeal also pointed out this, and I think this is an important broad principle, particularly from a media perspective. Yes. The Court of Appeal pointed out that in addition to the trial judge conducting some of these pre-trial hearings in secret, like 
closed courtroom so that people couldn't hear them, and in fact didn't allow the accused or the accused lawyer to attend many of them, instead appointing an amicus to argue the other side so the accused wouldn't even find out what all the police were doing. The Court of Appeal pointed out that that should really be an exception, but in this case, in some circumstances, the trial court not only sealed the courtrooms, but didn't allow there even to be posted the fact that the hearings were going on, conducted them in complete secrecy. And the Court of Appeal pointed out that in our respectful view, proceedings that do not allow for even that minimal degree of oversight should not occur, right? We, We just can't have completely secret court proceedings where you can't even know that there is a court proceeding going on such that you might be able to challenge that or review it. Uh, they said that's an anathema to our um, uh, justice system. Indeed. And so that's, I think, an important uh, takeaway here, but we're still left not knowing what on earth was this egregious conduct of the police, and as members of the community, how do we assess that? Um, presumably now we'll have a trial on the merits, but we ne- may never find out what exactly was this egregious misconduct that, despite having found that it occurred, the Court of Appeal has now said that this thing should uh, proceed. Uh, so uh, important, both in terms of important case, really shocking degree of secrecy being imposed here. Yes. And from a public perspective looking at it, you're still left wondering what on earth happened here and why was it so serious that the judge concluded this trial can't proceed at all and we may never know. Um, so uh, that's interesting. Hopefully in the future at least we'll know that such a, a hearing is going on, uh, but uh, we're still left in the dark uh, wondering what on earth did the police do that was so serious it led to the murder charge being stayed. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, a second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your knowledge and your insight. Until next week. Thank you so much. All right, have a great, great day. day. Bye now.